0: great privilege to be introduced by Don Carson. Uh, in, in some of our circles, we, we make fun of uh, Dr. D.A. Carson by calling him the Donald. That's how we refer to him as the Donald. Uh, I thought uh, going up to a city only happened uh, in scripture where it says that everyone goes up to Jerusalem, but I guess you learn something new every day. Uh, it's my great privilege to be here. Uh, I'm grateful to 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 uh, John, especially, and, and the committee for inviting me. Um, I always uh, feel, because I'm bicultural, bilingual, that I'm an outsider everywhere. You don't feel like you're an insider anywhere. I'll go back, I'm, I'm uh, ethnically Korean, so I'll be spending uh, five weeks with my family in Korea, and I'm gonna be an outsider there because I'm somewhat bilingual, and they'll make fun of my American accent, and and in certain places in, in North America, I feel like an outsider because I'm not part of the dominant culture. So. Uh, whatever the case might be, I'm grateful uh, that uh, I've been invited uh, to be here and to participate in this uh, great uh, work that you have here uh, in, in the Toronto area. Now, I've been given the assignment to preach from this extremely important and magnificent passage uh, in uh, Philippians uh, 2, uh, 1 through uh, 11. So let me uh, read that for us, and then we can uh, take a look at it together. mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus, we'll look at that, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. I remember a reading uh, uh, several years ago an article written by Susan Heck in one of Don's uh, books. Uh, and it was describing this uh, tension between truth and love. Um, there's a difference between speaking truthfully and speaking the truth in love. and We find this sort of tension all throughout Scripture, uh, that the gospel is, is an expression of, of truth and grace, as, um, as Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, that you need to speak the truth in love in John chapter 1 and so on. There's always this tension, uh, especially in the Old Testament, about how a God can be holy but also approachable and humble, how God can be so majestic but at the same time meek. And so Susan Heck in her article was describing about the difference between, I guess, grammar and poetry, uh, because poetry is is, is something that can be articulated in a more uh, kind of artistic way, whereas truth is more like grammar, you just kind of state the fact. And she was describing uh, a relationship between a young man and a woman. And the man was abusive in the relationship and uh, extremely uh, self-absorbed. And, and she went on to say that she could approach him and say that the problem in this relationship is so-and-so, or she can say it in another way. One way is to merely speak the truth, another way is to speak the truth in love. And she said this is the way it would go. She could go to her boyfriend and say that the problem in our relationship is that you are narcissistic, you are self-absorbed, you are self-concentrated, you are self uh, centered, you're a selfish individual, you've been abusive, you don't care about me. This is the problem in our relationship. Now, parenthetical note here when was the last time that you spoke to somebody directly like that and the person responded by saying, Oh, I'm so grateful that you've pointed this out to me, <laughs> that, uh, that I have blind spots in my life, and I'm, I'm so glad that you pointed this out. What was I thinking? I need to repent and ask for your forgiveness. Well, usually the people respond by getting defensive denying what has been stated, and blame-shifting other people. And so she went on to say that that is a truthful way. You're stating the fact, but you're not saying it winsomely. You're not being charitable. You're stating the truth. But another way to say it is to speak the truth in love, say essentially the same thing, but in a different way, to maintain the balance, the tension that we find all throughout life and all of Scripture. She said she could go to that boyfriend and say that the problem in our relationship is that we're both in love with the same person. What we find here is a similar kind of tension, something that is far more important than just the relationship. What we find here is is that the the scriptures in in Philippians chapter 2 is highlighting that Jesus was in the form of God. But then it also says that he took on the form of a servant, that he came in human appearance or the form of a human and, and died even to the point of death. And this is the context in which we're going to be looking at our passage. Paul is exhorting the church to grow in grace and in maturity because there was, there was factionalism. There was disunity. Otherwise, he would not mention rivalry or selfish ambition and vain conceit or, or, or a conceit here. And so what we find is, is that that the occasion for what was going on here was, of course, always in all of Paul's letters. The primary occasion is false teaching, as we see in chapter three, beware of the dogs. But we also see that there was factionalism and there was this unity. So he's trying to exhort the church and encourage the Philippian believers to grow in grace and in maturity. There are three things that, at least three things that we can see here. The first is we're going to look at the picture of growth and maturity what it means to be living in a gospel-shaped life. You see, it's one thing for us to be gospel-believing, but it's another thing for our lives and our ministries to be gospel-shaped, right? It's one thing for us to sign off on some sort of confessional statement and, 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 and a set of beliefs and, and, and doctrines, but it's another thing for our lives, our ministries, our preaching, everything that we do, every dimension of our life and ministry, to be influenced by the gospel, to be shaped by the gospel. So Paul is going to first give us a picture of that growth and maturity of the gospel-shaped life. And secondly, he's going to explain to us the power for that growth for a gospel-shaped life. And thirdly, the progression of growth for a gospel-shaped life. So the first is a picture of growth for a gospel-shaped life. Let's look here in verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy or tenderness and compassion. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest interest of others. Now, there are several conditional clauses, right? Where he says, if there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And then the main verb of this portion of Scripture is complete my joy. And then there are several subordinating uh, verbal clauses. So first one being being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And here it says, do nothing from rivalry or doing nothing. I mean, there is no verbal clause there, but it is assumed. Doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant. And then here where it says, let each of you look, looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what Paul is saying is, is that if you have participated in the partnership, the fellowship with the Spirit, if you have received comfort from love, if you have been encouraged by Christ, the gospel reality and the power that has visited your heart and what you have learned from us, what we have conveyed through our gospel-shaped ministry, may you learn that and demonstrate that through your lives for others. And he lists all of these things that would be a picture of what it would mean to engage in that sort of gospel-shaped life. You see, humility is a derogatory term, of servility. According to the Greco-Roman world, it was a despised word. You You don't talk about being weak. It was a shameful expression. There was no value for that sort of sensitivity and gentleness that the Bible describes. Although 270 times or so in the Bible, we find this word humility. And we're going to see that it is also going to be applied to the life of Christ uh, in a moment. But what Paul does is, is that he contrasts this humility, where it says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. He is contrasting humility with this expression, rivalry and conceit. Rivalry can be translated as selfish ambition. Or this word here, conceit, is sometimes translated as vain conceit. In in some of the older translations, it was translated as uh, uh, vain glory. And this word literally combines two Greek words, one word that refers to glory and another one that refers to emptiness. So this word here means empty glory or an honor vacuum. It's the same word that he uses in Galatians 5.26 where it says, you ought not to be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. You see, what's going on here is, is that Paul is saying the reason why there's factionalism, the reason why there's this unity, the reason why there isn't this kind of a gospel-shaped life that's, that's, that's filling uh, your community in certain instances is because you are seeking glory and honor. You have a hunger for it. There's an insatiable appetite to fill the emptiness that you have within your heart. And we fill that usually with other sources and other gifts, and other items because there is an emptiness. And what do we do in the process? We provoke other people. We envy those who are a little bit above us. We provoke or disdain those who are below us. There is a deep insecurity. There are ugly relationship pathologies that exist within our hearts because there is an honor depletion. There's a starvation of glory because we desperately want our lives to matter. We want our lives to matter, right? I mean, think about the word glory. It means weightiness, and, and, and we want our lives to matter. We want our lives to, to have value. We want to be visible, not invisible. We want to be valued, not discounted. We want to be an insider, not an outsider. We want to be respected, not ignored. We want to be a somebody, not a nobody. We want our lives to have meaning. We don't want to be relinquished. We don't want to be inconsequential. We want our lives to matter. My youngest daughter, her name is Charlotte, and, you know, the youngest ones, especially when they're at a younger age, they love asking questions, and they always want to, to kind of maximize the question, right? So they'll come, and she'll come to me and say, hey, Daddy, what is your, what is your favorite movie of all times? Right? And she'll ask me uh, uh, on other occasions, she'll say, what, what is your favorite Bible character of all times? I'm saying, and she'll say, well, except for God, Jesus, and the Spirit, so she is aware of the Trinity. Outside of God, who's your favorite Bible character? I mean, how are you going to answer that question? It's like, well, they're all a bunch of sinners, and in need of God's grace. And but she asked me the question. She asked me, like, well, what's your favorite movie? And she was surprised to hear my response. I don't know why she was surprised, but I told her, um, well, there are many movies that I enjoy, and my fa- one of my favorite ones is Rocky. Remember Rocky? Uh, this, I guess it was one of the first ones that I saw in, in a movie theater in the 70s, but, but not Rocky 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, whatever, uh, the other uh, sequels, but, you know, the first few where there was Apollo Creed and, you know, you know Clubber Lang and, and maybe Drago. You know, remember that, right? And, and I remember watching that movie, and, and it really resonated with my heart as somebody who had recently come to this country uh, from another country. There was this fellow who was working really hard. He didn't have all the gifts, right? But he was very stubborn and he worked really hard. Remember, before he uh, entered into that uh, boxing match with Apollo Creed, he told his w- wife, Adrienne, and he said, hey, all I want to do is I want to just be able to, to, to kind of finish the bout, to be able to be there at the very end. Then I'll know that I'm not a bum. Remember that? And, and, and I heard that and I said, That makes a whole lot of sense, because deep within our hearts, there is a frumpishness, right? There there is a a bummishness in our hearts. There's a chubbiness. And, And I want to know that I am far more valuable than what other people are saying of me or what I think of myself. Do I really matter? And if I can go the distance, then I know that I will not be a bum. Why are we aspirational? See, aspirational people, are future-oriented, imaginative, naive, optimistic, extrapolationists. In other words, <laughs> the Bible describes hope as a living hope, according to 1 Peter chapter 1. It is an inheritance. It is not something that we will acquire at the very end. It's something that we already have already, not in this full consummate sense, but already it is one of the spiritual blessings that Paul describes in Ephesians 1:3. Every spiritual blessing benefits and privileges of the gospel that are already ours because we're in union with Christ. But aspirational people, we, are, we have dreams, we have fantasies, we don't have real potential now, but we're hoping at some point that we will become a somebody. That is called a somebody mystique because we might believe that we are not valuable at this very moment. There's an empty glory, there's an honor vacuum, there's an honor depletion, there is a glory starvation within our hearts, and we want to know whether or not we're going to be able to find meaning within our own hearts. And in that context, Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so now... You have to ask the question, well, if that's the case and I'm struggling with this, how am I going to be able to get that? Where is the power generator for helping me to be humble when my flesh tells me that I ought to be concerned about my own self-interest rather than the interest of others? And we'll get to that in a moment. But he says that humility is something that is rooted in the encouragement that we get from Christ, comfort from the love. So the way that this passage is, is highlighted, if I can provide a simple structure, he gives this picture in, in the first few verses. Then there is that great Christ hymn, whether it was him or not, that, that great section in verses five through eleven, and then the therefore in verses uh, eleven, what is it? Verses uh, twelve and thirteen, and the three examples of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Right. That's essentially the structure of the entire chapter, uh, of chapter two here in Philippians. But when it says in verse 4, let each of us look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, the word there in the Greek does not exist. There is no word interest. It it literally says, let each of you look not only to his own blank, but also to the blank of others. I mean, that, that simply means that you can fill that in with whatever the interest might be. In other words, be concerned about other people's time before you are more concerned about your own time. Be more concerned about other people's financial needs before your own. Be more concerned about other people's happiness, their commitments, their health, their reputation before your own. It's essentially the summary of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You ought to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But then look what it says here in verse 3. It says, do nothing from rivalry or doing nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count, or counting others more significant than yourselves. The point is not what others are. The point is what you count others to be. One commentator put it this way. Not are they worthy, but will you count them as worthy? That that is what Paul is saying here. And if that's the case, then you can count anyone worthy, whether you consider them to be worthy or not. This is what Paul is trying to say. Actually, modern uh, research also supports uh, what Paul is trying to say. In 2007, in the New York Times magazine, there was an essay entitled Happiness 101. It was talking about positive psychology and and boosting your self-esteem and that sort of a thing. And researchers demonstrated, this is from real kind of data that they had gathered, that people who long to find pleasure for their own interests will ultimately end up on this hedonic treadmill, that is, hedonistic treadmill, that they will be so addicted to finding their own pleasure and fulfilling their own interests that ultimately they will never be satisfied with anything. They have an insatiable appetite, and when that appetite is not fully satisfied, then there's going to have to be something that is greater than what they're experiencing at the moment. And then, this data demonstrated that you will find your greatest happiness when you are engaged in acts of selfless kindness. Had they read this portion of scripture from Philippians chapter 2, they could have saved themselves a whole lot of research and money and time. Apostle Paul knows what the human heart really knows. That when you give, it is actually more satisfying than when you receive. Now, we have to get to the power generator for growth for a gospel-shaped life. And this leads us now to the following verses. So let's read from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the controversy within the last several decades on this particular passage—you might be surprised that there is a whole lot of controversy among modern commentators. And you can take a look at some of the stuff that Don has written, or Peter O'Brien, or, or others who have written on this. Because you see, here in verse five, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus. Some translations will translate it: uh, your attitude should be that as same as Christ. So what's the controversy? I'll just say it this way. The conventional approach was that yes, Jesus is a model and in an his example, we ought to have the mindset, we ought to be like-minded, right? That was a term that was used multiple times. We see it here three times in this passage, which was used earlier on in chapter one. And so the life of Christ is the grounds, his self-humiliation is the power is the grounds, is the basis for why we can be humble, why we can consider other people's interests before our own. But some modern commentators have now looked at this because they say, well, there isn't a verb here in verse 5, and so you've got to kind of insert what this means. It's kind of an ellip, you know, there's an ellipsis, so you've got to kind of insert something here. And they have emphasized union with Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with union with Christ, but What's trying to be conveyed is, is that, that what's being stated in verses 1 through 4 are not really consistently rooted, coherently unified with this so-called pre-Pauline hymn. Whether or not it was a hymn that Paul had picked up or not, I just want to show you how you cannot separate this passage that we're looking at at this moment with Paul, what Paul had said earlier. simply from its verbal semblance. Okay, look what it says here. It says here, uh, who, though, has kind of a consensus thought here, but it could be causal, because being in the form of God. He did not, that is Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now, remember, we saw the word count. It says that we ought not to count uh, we ought to count others more significant. That was in verse 3. It's the same verb, same, I'm sorry, the same term that is used here for Jesus that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be exploited, but made himself nothing. Again, this term here literally is trans- translated He emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of something as if he gave up his divine rights, but he simply emptied himself. And this word here, emptied, where it says, but made himself nothing, goes back to the term in verse 3 where it says that you are a vainglorious conceit. You you have an empty glory, an honor vacuum. And again it says here that Jesus gave uh, uh, gave up himself, he emptied himself. And then it says, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself again. Going back to verse 3, where it says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant." How, what Paul is trying to say is that the only way that we're going to be able to fight the flesh's inclination to want to be more concerned about my own interests before others, to be able to be self-concentrated as opposed to being other-centered is to be able to root our motivation, root our power, root our foundation in the life and the example of Christ. You see, Jesus' life is at least exemplary, even though this passage doesn't clearly highlight that, but I would say it's exemplary and it's also substitutionary. And I don't know why there has to be all this controversy in trying to uh, separate uh, these sorts of things. Now, I think that there is a, a really good way to kind of speak into this controversy. And that is, when you look at this reference here where it says, taking the form of a servant, When you look at a biblical theology of the servant motif, you find that in the garden, Adam was called to be a servant. He was called to subdue and to rule the land, have dominion and to till and to cultivate all the raw ingredients that God had placed in the garden for him to establish civilization. I would like to argue possibly developing a city and and all of these things that, that he was called to do. And so he was asked to be a servant of God, but Adam failed to meet the requirements to be a faithful servant of God. So we also find in Deuteronomy, where there's a reference to corporate Israel having to serve and to worship their God in the wilderness, but yet corporate Israel failed to meet the expectations and the requirements to be a servant of God. So Adam failed in the garden, corporate Israel failed in the wilderness, and what we find now here in the trajectory of the expectation, of the plot line, of the tension that is now being built, is that now there is a servant. A perfect servant who comes and fulfills all of the requirements, the messianic duties. And we'll see in a moment that he is fulfilling all of these expectations that we find in the book of Isaiah. But before doing that, I want us to look at the three movements that we find here. Three movements of the gospel in verses 6 through 11. First, we see that the first movement is emphasizing the incarnation. Look what it says here in verse 6, because being in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form or appearance. This is talking about the incarnation, the very nature of a servant he was willing to clothed himself with humanity and he emptied himself of his glory. He was perfectly divine and human, but he emptied himself through the incarnation. Here's the first movement of the gospel. And secondly, we see the atonement. We see here in the second part of verse 8 and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross So we see that Jesus voluntarily obeyed death on the cross. Jesus came to die and fulfill the law of God. So we see the incarnation, we see the atonement, and lastly, we see the resurrection in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So we see the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection. These are the three movements of the gospel, which is the, 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 the historical work of Jesus fulfilling all of the messianic expectations of the servant of God. He fulfilled it in in himself, and that is the exemplary and substitutionary power that is made available for those who have encouragement in Christ, who have comfort from his love, who participate in the Spirit with affection and sympathy. So it is his coming, it is his dying, it is his resurrecting, restoring a power. So what does this mean? It means that we need to have the attitude or the frame of mind to embrace Jesus' successive historical events in his life that have now been made available to us. Why? Because again, only way we can be humble is to look at the humility of Christ. The only way that we will be able to overcome the self-glorious emptiness is to be able to know that Jesus was willing to relinquish and to empty himself and the only way that we will be able to count other people more significant is for us to recognize that Jesus himself did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited his coming his dying his rising on our behalf it's essentially what he writes in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that we will that we will, we have been made alive uh, that we have been raised and that we will be seated those are the three successive historical events of the life of Christ. His resurrection, his ascension, and his session. All of those things have now been imputed to us, according to Ephesians chapter 2. So, what are some of the, uh, uh, the implications of this at this point? Well, we see here in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That would be the name of Yahweh. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is talking about a universal confession, not a universal salvation, right? And it is also talking about the fact that there is this opportunity, knowing this, for us to respond in worship, because Jesus became a nobody. When you you become a servant, when you take on the form of a servant, you're essentially uh, saying that you have no rights. As as Don says, not giving up his rights of deity, but essentially you're saying that you have no rights as a servant. And Don puts it this way, and this will lead me to this background in Isaiah where he says, unqualified divine majesty unites with the immeasurable divine self-sacrifice. That's pretty good. I don't know if you remember that, Don, but... Unqualified divine majesty unites with this immeasurable divine self-sacrifice. Now again, when people say that there's this continuity from what we're being asked to do with the the life of Jesus, all you have to do is look at the background of Isaiah. Isaiah 45, clearly, where it refers to, therefore, uh, also God exalted him to the highest place. And then it says, every knee should bend and every tongue should acknowledge. That comes straight from Isaiah 45. But something that hasn't really been developed by commentators, which I find useful, is that also Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 are in the background, I believe. Not a direct quotation, but probably an allusion. Where it talks about resolving the tension of the majesty of our God, of Yahweh, and also the suffering servant. How is it possible that the suffering servant can be the Lord? How can it be that God who is exalted and lofty and lifted up could also be so abased and be humbled and to die even to the point of death? Look what it says in Isaiah 57.15. It says, Thus says the exalted and the lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with those who are crushed and lowly in spirit. Now, you might not be aware, but there is a very, very useful and helpful uh, Hebrew verbal combination there where it says that, that thus uh, says the exalted and the lofty one. And one of the verbs that is translated in the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew there is picked up by Paul when he makes reference and says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. What is the novel contribution of Paul in Philippians chapter 2? And I'm quoting one commentator. Listen to what it says. The radical novelty in Philippians 2 lies in the way in which God in Jesus Christ dwells in the depths, not only with the lowly, as it says in Isaiah 57, 15, but as the lowly. You see, it's not as though Jesus Christ has come to dwell with the lowest. He just kind of has come and, uh, and, and to spend time with marginalized people, people who are isolated, and he certainly did that in his ministry, but he didn't simply come to dwell with them, but he came to dwell as the lowest of the low. In other words, his suffering, his humiliation, his death and exaltation, all of these things was a way for God to demonstrate the transcendence of the servant whom he has sent. That he is highly exalted precisely because of his humiliation. How ironic is that? Precisely because of his humiliation. Then, what are some of the implications? Well, it means that the gospel reverses everything that we know to be true in our culture. That Jesus wins through losing. He says that if you want to be first, you need to learn to be last. If you want to be a leader, you must first learn to follow. Uh, if you want to, uh, to know what it means to, to receive glory, you must suffer. The first need to be last. If you want to gain life, you need to lose it. If you want to be exalted, you need to be humbled. Losing is winning. Dying is living. This is what Paul is trying to say. This is the picture of a gospel-shaped life that is rooted in the self-humiliation and the abasement and the emptying and the surrendering, taking on the form of a servant through the incarnation, through the atonement, through the resurrection, historical life and obedience of the servant on our behalf. It is the emptying of his glory. It is a complete reversal of everything that we know to be true. It is divine excellency of paradoxical combination of lordliness on the one hand and exquisite accessibility as one person has said and have you wondered why even all of the different ministries i this past week i was preaching from a passage uh, uh in the gospels and in john chapter 20 where jesus comes right and and who was there's mary magdalene there's no historical indication that she was a prostitute it just means that she came from magdala and we don't know that uh, just had a poor reputation, but she came. She was essentially the church, right, after the resurrection. Why is it? Why is it that in instances like that, or in the Gospel of Luke, of all the marginalized people, the poor, the, the sick, the Gentiles, the tax collectors, and, and so on, that why is it that the Gospel comes to them? I've never met a poor person or somebody who is completely isolated and marginalized in culture, who look at Jesus as a mere moral teacher. And what good would that do? What motivation is there? That you are completely uh, uh, in a position where you have no access, you don't have any resources at all, and you want to see Jesus as a good moral teacher? Only middle-class Western North Americans. We want to see Jesus. There's a tendency to want to see Jesus merely as a, as a good teacher, as a rabboni, as a rabbi, who will come, and what Jesus is trying to say is, is that, that I'm something far more. So he comes to this woman, not a man, somebody who's from Magdala, demon-possessed, seven demons. Jesus exorcised those out of her. She was not a theologian. She was a layperson. Why? Because... Through that life, and through all of the other examples in Scripture, she was on the outside of every single category of the inside-outside debate. So the gospel tells us that it is not the good who are in and the bad who are out. The gospel tells us the humble are in and the proud are out. And our final security comes from the fact that we find our record and the record and the life and the example of Christ. And lastly, finally, the progression of growth. Let's look here in verses 12 through the following. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the main verb here, again, the, the command is work out your own salvation. And people, again, Don mentioned it a little bit, I mean, clearly, it's not saying that you find your security and favor from God throughout through your own works. Otherwise, he would not show the basis or the reason in verse 13, where it says, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And, of course, this is tied in closely with what was said in chapter 1, verse 6. But I find a very interesting kind of inverted parallel structure here. It says here, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but also in my absence. So it's an inverted structure. So it's, as you have obeyed, in my presence, and then now it's upside down, what we will call a chiastic structure, but in my absence, work out. So when I look at this workout, of course, it has a general sense of working out your salvation, of the work that Christ has already done for us, and so on. But specifically within this context, This working out is is obeying of what the Philippian believers always obeyed. And what was that obedience? Well, it goes back tied into the term that is used in verse A where it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. So it is a self self abased self-humiliating, self-denying, self-giving, self-donating, not self-centered, not self-promoting, not self-congratulatory, not self-absorbed, but it is a self-denying, self-giving expression of obedience, which is the working out, the continuous working out of our salvation by living our lives, if we have found partnership and participation in the Spirit, if we have received comfort from His love, if there is encouragement in Christ, if we have ultimately found our power what Christ has accomplished for us through his life. That is what's ultimately going to give us the motivation to overcome the overinflation view of our own abilities, our pride. And what we find here is, is that you have the example that follows. I know I'm not supposed to go there, but it just gives three examples of what this obeying, of this self humbling, self donating, self giving, humility concerning others more significant than yourself. Three examples. Number one, Paul, in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Second example of Timothy, verse 20. For I have no one like him. I mean, think about that. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, right? Going back to chapter two, verse three. Not those of Jesus Christ. Well, what about Epaphroditus? Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. Think about it. He's ill. He's dying. He's a messenger. He's doing the work, bringing, a, bringing uh, financial support, which had been late for whatever reason. And he's a courier, and he's bringing this kind of message. And, and he's concerned about other people's concern that he is being ill. This is an example. This is an expression. Three examples of what it means to engage in this self humbling, self donating life. It's a work of humility, of self sacrifice. Well, then, how can we bring this to a close? Well, let me just close with this reference to a passage in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 3. You're familiar with this passage? Uh, King Solomon is is sitting on his throne, and, and two prostitutes. Uh, who are living together evidently in a home, and they both had sons. Uh, Each one had a son within three days of one another. So in the middle of the night, one of the women, uh, she kind of rolled over and suffocated the child, and he died accidentally. So she came to this realization while the other woman was sleeping, and she took her dead son and put it next to the other woman and took her live son and put that son uh, next to her. So in the morning, of course, the one who, who lost, uh, who, who, whose son was stolen by the other woman realizes what has happened. So they go before Solomon and they want Solomon to give their wisdom and his counsel, give his wisdom and to be able to confer counsel to them. And he explains everything to them. And the other woman says, oh, no, she's lying. And this woman said, no, she's lying. And, and Solomon, what is he going to do? One person's word against the other. So this is where the wisdom comes in. He looks to both of them and says, okay, you're saying this is your son and you're saying this is your son? Okay, let's bring some uh, utensil here and let's, let's cut this child in half and you can have half the child and you can have the other half, right? You see the great wisdom in this. Not the wisdom in cutting the child in half, but the wisdom of, 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 of approaching the women this way. And then the real mother of the child says, you know what, no, don't take the child's life you can just give the child to the other woman. And the one who, who lied about the whole situation said, you know what, if I can't have it, that she can't have it, it doesn't matter, take his life. And of course, King Solomon realized who the real mother was. And what is, what is the point here? You see, the woman who had lied about her child, she reached for something and she wasn't able to get it. She reached for something and she lost it. There was an empty glory She wanted significance, and a child would provide that, especially being a prostitute, completely marginalized. In an ancient culture where having children, especially sons, would be able to give you some value. She reached for something, and she lost it, whereas the other woman is essentially speaking and acting out the gospel because she gave something away, ultimately, in order to receive it and gain it. And What we find here in this picture of the life of Jesus is that Jesus forfeited himself. He emptied himself. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Think about it. He is the most self-assured individual. There isn't a glory vacuum. There is no em- honor emptiness within his own heart. If anyone had the right to hold on to his right and to be entitled, it was the Son. But because he knew that people are so- selfish, there's a selfish ambition, There is a vain glory, there's an empty honor in order for them to know what it would mean to consider others more significant, to be able to die to their own interests, and to be able to be concerned about the interests of others. The only way that that would happen is for Christ ultimately to forfeit his own life in order to receive it, as it says in verse 9, that God has highly exalted him. Or to put it another way, Jesus was, became a nobody when he was the ultimate cosmic somebody, right? And if you allow me to change a, a noun into a verb, Jesus was utterly nobodied. So a bunch of nobodies will become somebodies. This was the forfeiting nature in the life of Jesus. And this is the only thing that's going to change the motivational mechanism within your own heart, that we will not want to provoke or envy other people. That we will be able to be self-assured, have a self-forgetfulness. Or as C.S. Lewis said, the humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That we will not be so self-conscious of how people are viewing us, or, or, or what I'm going to say is going to be acceptable to Don Carson. <laughs> Jesus was nobodied for us. One of the greatest demonstrations, friends, and why I really do appreciate Don Carson and Tim Kellers and others in the coalition in the council is because I think that the greatest demonstration of your understanding the gospel, having a gospel-shaped life, is when you have power, you know how to share it. The gospel says, the gospel is about power sharing, not about power accumulation. It's about giving of yourself. So let me end it this way. There are several commands that are given here. It says, first of all, complete my joy by doing all of these things. It also says, uh, have this mind among you, and then it goes on to say in verse uh, 12, work out your own salvation. How are we going to be able to do it? Are you going to be able to obey these commands perfectly? Of course not. How are you going to be able to truly obey the law? How are you going to be able to truly receive the law? And the only way for us to know that is the servant who came to fulfill all that which all their servants in the Old Testament were asked to do, but yet they failed. And we fail. That he was the only one who has provided the resolution for all of the disconnected themes where the plot thickens and there is an incompleteness to the story and he comes to fulfill and to satisfy and to resolve all of the unmet expectations. And if I know that Jesus Christ, being the second Adam, although this is not from this passage, but the second Adam who came to fulfill that which the first Adam failed to do, the second imperfect servant who came to fulfill that which the first servant failed to do, when he obeys the law of God perfectly, then you know what? It gives me confidence to obey it, because I know that my favor from God is not ultimately rooted in my perfect obedience. Otherwise, I'd be crushed by the weightiness of the high demands of the holiness of God. Jesus Christ himself fulfilled and met all of those demands. That is why when it says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit with the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night that ought not to be an encouraging scriptural memory verse for those people who interpret scripture moralistically because when was the last time you meditated and delighted in the law of the Lord day and night and I believe psalm one is part of psalm two because there's similar language I believe it's also messianic royal psalm where it says blessed is the man the man the only man who delighted and meditated on the law of the Lord day and night because he fulfilled all the obligations of the law. The unmet expectations of the servant in himself, he did it through his humiliation, laying down his, his life for us that we can have the confidence to look at the high standards of the law and not be crushed by it, but actually be motivated, not demotivated, but motivated to obey it, to please the will of, please our Father. And to obey and to do the will of our God. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we are amazed at the obedience of your Son, the perfect servant of God, who humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, coming in the appearance of, of human form, and laying down his life and dying and securing for us favor from God satisfying your holiness and and giving us all of his obedience that we might be able to work out our salvation, to live a self-denying, self-donating, self-humiliating life and to know that we will find great joy because our ultimate favor from you is not dependent upon our perfect obedience. Otherwise, we'd be crushed but it is based upon the obedience of that perfect servant whose life gives us the motivation and the power to worship you, to die to ourselves, to consider others more worthy, to consider them more significant, to humble ourselves. Lord, may you call up leaders in this place and in Canada, all the churches that are represented here, that they might know that the way up is down. Losing is winning. Triumph came through defeat. Strength through weakness. That the last will be first and the first will be last. The proud will be opposed, but the humble exalted. Because Jesus Christ was ultimately exalted, giving us the life and the power that we need from the gospel. We worship him this day and every day. In his name we pray.